Happy Fourth of July. Uh, just as we talked about on Juneteenth, there are things to uh, lament and things to celebrate when we celebrate our nation's holiday. There are things to lament because there's still injustice done in our country, but there is much to celebrate as well. Even some of the shenanigans that people get involved in on social media and things like that, we have the freedom to do so here in America, and I'm thankful for those freedoms and thankful for our country and thankful that we can gather here and worship in this beautiful building right here in the heart of Iowa City. So very grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy here in America. The last uh, couple of weeks, we have been talking about one of the main themes, or really the main theme, of the book of James, the whole idea of faith and works. A couple of weeks ago on June 19th, we talked about what faith without works looks like and how it is dead and how it leads to partiality, how it leads to even enslavement of other people. It leads to self-deception. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we looked at what faith that leads to works looks like, genuine faith. And then we talked about how those two weeks may have left you feeling unsatisfied specifically from a theological perspective. Because James keeps referring to faith, but he doesn't define for us what he means when he says faith. Well, that's for a number of reasons. James is going to get to it now at the end of chapter 2. A couple of reasons why he's waited till now to give us the theological justification for what faith is, is because he is writing a letter to people and they are going to stand in front of the church and read it, and it's going to take them about 15 minutes. So he can kind of write in a non-linear fashion. He's not preaching over 10 weeks like we are here. Also, to our modern ears, it doesn't uh, seem right to kind of give our thesis statement or our theological justification for what we're saying right in the middle. You wouldn't pass your dissertation if you did it that way. You've got to tell people where you're headed. James doesn't do that. So if you have found things theologically kind of unfulfilling or unexplained the last couple of weeks, that's why. And this week we are talking about uh, what is faith or what or who is your faith in as we talk about the theology of faith and works. Would you pray with me and for me as we get started? Father, we do need your help tonight. We need your help to hear from you what you would want us to hear. God, I need your help to speak clearly and with the wisdom you provide, God, each one here tonight does not need to hear more words from man, but they need to hear words from their creator, their heavenly father. And so God, I pray that that's what they would hear here tonight. I pray that as your word speaks, that you would speak to each one in the way that you choose and in the way that we need. Father, remind us that the gospel is good news for us and others and also help us to believe it. Help us to be moved to share the good news that we have received with others. And help us to see wonderful things in your word, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. What makes a good life? What is the good life? We hear that phrase, the good life. Or what, what makes a good person? You may even hear people say, well, I'm generally a good person. Or we say that we are looking for the good life. Or when someone is doing something to benefit themselves, they're looking for the good life. What is the good life and what is a good person? Well, James starts with a question that's very similar here in this section of James chapter 2. When he asks the question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
He is asking a question here that we have and our society has. People outside the church or people inside the church look at people that claim to have faith, that claim to follow Jesus or claim to be a Christian, and then they ask, well, where are their works? I don't see their works. Or maybe I see negative things and I think they're hypocritical things. So James here is asking a question that we have and he is also asking a question that our society has as well. What good is it if someone says they have faith but then they do not have works? Here, James has two specific kinds of people in mind. The first kind of person that he has in mind is the person that he has just described in James 2, verses 1 through 13. We break these sermons up into sections so we don't have six-hour sermons. But again, this is a letter written straight through. So James has just described a person that says they have faith, but then they not only do not have works, they have things like self-deception and partiality in how they treat other people. They are not loving their neighbor well. So James has a specific kind of person in mind, but then he is also generically asking the question in this form of parable or in a theoretical situation, what kind of person says they have faith and then they do not have works? Let's continue on in verse 15 as he starts to answer the question. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by itself, if it does not have works, is, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So let's take a look at the situation, the theoretical situation, the parabolic situation that, that James sets out here. There is someone that is poorly clothed. In the Greek, what he is describing here is someone that has clothes on, but they are not properly dressed. They've got a tank top on that I wore to the beach yesterday. Sorry for the mental image, but they have the tank top on that I wore yesterday, but it's January in Iowa. They are unproperly clothed for the moment, and they are also lacking in their daily food. They're lacking in their provisions for the day. And someone comes across them, and they say this phrase to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. This uh, phrase is actually taken from Jewish culture and the Hebrew language, and what this person literally is saying to them is, I will pray that God provides the things that you need. That's what this person says. They come across someone that is ill-clothed for the moment. They lack their daily provision. And the person says, go in peace and may God provide for your needs. You should ask for God to provide for the things you need, is what they say to them. This situation that James lays out for us, he has a conclusion about this theoretical situation if it were to happen. Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's take note here of what James says this faith is. I think that you and I, including people in our culture, would not say the same thing as James is saying here. We have a word that we use, especially people outside the church say this sometimes about people in the church. They call this person a hypocrite. They say they believe one thing, but then their actions show something different. So 
I think we or our culture would call this person a hypocrite, but that's not what James calls this person. He says the explanation for this theoretical situation, this parable that he's laying out for us, the explanation is what? Look at verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This person's faith is dead. Not hypocritical, but dead. They don't have faith is the conclusion that he comes to. Let's continue on here in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Here, James is laying out for us a hypothetical or a rhetorical conversation where someone is saying that faith and works can be separated. They can say, I have faith, but they can not connect them with works. That's the theoretical situation. Someone is saying, you have faith, great. Well, I have works. This person in the rhetorical conversation is saying that they can be separated, that faith and works can be separated. The problem is in verse 26, James is going to tell us, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here he is telling us some people say that faith and works can be separated. I'm telling you they can't be. They are inseparable. And once again, here James gives us his main point in the last verse. He's going to illustrate it for us, but then he's going to make his final statement right here in verse 26, that faith and works are inseparable. The defense that this rhetorical person is giving is, I have sound theology. And in fact, the most sound theology. It's the Shema from the Hebrew scriptures. The Lord our God is one. A Jewish person would pray this every morning and every evening. It was the ultimate prayer that they could pray. It was the ultimate prayer of worship. The Lord our God is one. The name Yahweh, that's where that comes from. The Lord our God is one. So this person is saying, James says, you believe that God is one. You believe the ultimate theology. You believe the ultimate theology that God is one. But he says, you believe that, well, so do the demons. The demons even believe that there is one God. And then he takes it a step further and he says, at least they shudder at the name of God. The word shudder means physically shake. He's saying at least the demons shake when they hear that God is one and you can't be moved to do anything. That's the comparison that he is making here. At least the demons shudder when they hear that God is one, but you have separated faith and works. That's what he's getting at here. And then he calls them fools. This is a harsh statement. In fact, it's a statement usually used for inanimate objects or animals in the Bible. But here he says this person is foolish if they say that they can have faith without works. The two are inseparable. Then he gives us two biblical examples from the Old Testament, and they're very instructive. Verse 21 through 24, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. A couple of notes here. In verse 21, when it says, was not our father Abraham? Abraham was known as the father of the Jewish people because if we look in the book of Genesis, Abraham was called out of his pagan nation and he was told he was going to be the father of many and he was the father of the Jewish faith. So he's pointing back to, okay, our father, the one that our faith goes back to, our oldest Jewish ancestor, Abraham. So he says, our father. He wants to point them back to Abraham and his Jewish audience living mainly in Jerusalem is going to connect right away with, okay, yes, Abraham is our father. So he uses him as an example. As we read this in the book of James, if we have read the New Testament or if we are just familiar with the Protestant Reformation, something in the back of our mind should say, James, that doesn't sound quite right. In fact, Paul says seemingly the opposite of what James is saying here in the book of Galatians. Let's look at these right next to each other. James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Galatians 2.16 says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It seems like James and Paul are not talking about the same gospel when we read these side by side. Because James is doing a lot of things here, we don't have time to go into all the depths of this difference or seemingly different statements that are being said here, but we are going to spend a little bit of time on this because we need to understand what James is and is not saying. So we're going to go into this for a little bit, and we're going to pick apart this supposed controversy between what Paul and James are saying, and I'm going to point out five things that help us unravel this supposed difference, okay? We're going to have to make it quicker than I want to, but there's still more to do here tonight. So the first thing, Paul and James use the term justified, but they are not using it in the same way. Look here at verse 22, James says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And then verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This word completed seems to be giving us a hint at what Paul is saying or what James is saying when he uses the word justified. He's using this word justified to further expound on his idea of completed. That his works and faith was completed by his works. Also, when he says here that faith was active along with his works, the Greek word that's used there is the same word we get synergy from. It's two things working together to accomplish the same purpose. His faith and his works were working together, and his faith was completed by his works. Now let's look at how Paul is using the term justified. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. We can see here that James is talking about our faith being completed by our works, and Paul is talking about being justified 
being called righteous because we are in Christ Jesus, which we're familiar with that term here at Grace Community Church. Paul and James are both saying here that faith is given and righteousness is given and our works flow out of that faith and that righteousness. Romans 4:13 puts this very plainly as well when it says the righteousness that comes through faith. Faith and righteousness are things that are intimately connected because the righteousness that we have is in Christ Jesus and our faith in Christ Jesus is what saves us. So here Paul is using the word justified and James is using the word justified but they're talking about two parts to our righteousness. Also we're being what's being communicated here is that there has been a faith given to us and that faith is ongoing. So we can answer this or we can see an aspect of this complexity when we answer the question, were we saved and were we given righteousness and were we given faith once or do we still have faith? Did we have faith in Jesus when we prayed to receive Christ or do we have faith in Jesus now? And the answer is yes. There is an ongoing faith in Jesus which initially saved us and is now producing acts of righteousness. So Paul and James are talking about the same thing. Similarly, they are both using the word works, but not in the same way. James 2:22 you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. If we look again at Galatians 2:16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, then we see him repeat again by works of the law. When Paul talks about how we are not justified by works, he's talking about works of the law. Here, James is talking about works and in acts of service, acts of righteousness, the fruit that comes out of our lives, the obedience that we do in obeying God's commands. They're using the same word, but not in exactly the same way. Next, James is talking about someone who claims to have faith but doesn't have real faith. That's at the heart of what he is saying here. Faith and works cannot be separated. Remember verse 26, that's his main thesis statement for this section. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? This person says they have faith. Lots of people say they have faith. One of my kids can say they can slam dunk a basketball. That does not mean they can slam dunk a basketball. I can say I can do math. That does not mean I can do math. This person says they have faith. But James tells us they don't have genuine faith. And that's something that Paul would agree with and Jesus would agree with. So James is talking about someone who claims to have faith but doesn't have real faith. Number 4. G- James believes the gospel. James believes the gospel, the same gospel that Jesus taught that Paul wrote about. James believes in the same gospel. Chapter 1 verse 18 of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James 2:23 Abraham was called a friend of God and Paul says in Romans 11 that we are grafted into Abraham's family. James and Paul 
believe in the gospel. There is something that uh, commentator Scott McKnight calls the Jesus Creed. The Jesus Creed. You've already heard part of the Jesus Creed. It's the Shema. The, there is one God. But then Jesus, how does Jesus sum up the law and the prophets? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Scott McKnight puts the three together and calls them the Jesus Creed. This is the way of Jesus. The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus summarizes the law of God. You know the only place that all three of those concepts appear in the New Testament? James. James. Paul, in all of his writings, didn't even put all three of those in any one book. Here we see them in the book of James. James believes the gospel. James and Paul are both learning from the Holy Spirit. James and Paul are both discipled by the Spirit who rose Christ Jesus from the dead. James grew up in the same household as Jesus even. They are talking about the same gospel. Lastly, oh, the irony of the controversy. So much ink has been spilled, so many words given trying to sort out all these differences that are being said. Some more um, liberal, not politically, but liberal commentators that don't necessarily believe that Scripture is God-breathed have even gone so far as to say that James and Paul don't believe the same gospel, that they won't, both were not following Jesus. The irony of spending so much time trying to pick apart what Paul and James are saying here when they're both telling us that faith without works are dead. There is a tendency among believers to fight over theology more than actually obeying it, which is part of the irony of the controversy as well. It's important. We're going to talk about this in a minute, how deepening our theology is important. But let's not miss what James is trying to tell us. One thing he's telling us is even if you can't sort all this out and all these seeming differences between Paul and James, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Don't show partiality. Worship God through acts of righteousness and justice. That's what James is getting at. We need to move on because there's more. Verse 25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Two Old Testament examples. The first James uses is our father, the father of the Jewish faith, Abraham, and now Rahab the prostitute. Who is Rahab the prostitute? Rahab lived in Jericho. As God's people, they were delivered out of Egypt. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. They're given the law, all those things. They cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. One of the first cities they come to is Jericho. It's protected by a wall. It's a fortified city. And so Joshua sends two spies into Jericho to spy on Jericho to see how can we breach the walls of Jericho? What is there? What are we going to face when we get there? These two spies need some place to stay, and Rahab invites them into her home, and then she lies on their behalf, lies to the soldiers of Jericho, and saves them, lowers them down with a rope down out of her window, rescues them. So this is who Rahab is. This is how she saves these spies. 
In just a moment, we're going to hear a little bit more about why she did that. We then see Rahab show up in the New Testament in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Because Rahab was redeemed, as I said, we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but Rahab was then the mother of Boaz, and Boaz married Ruth, and Rahab was David's great-grandfather. Rahab is one of five women listed in the book of Matthew in the line of Jesus. Rahab gives us her reason in Joshua chapter 2 for why she was rescuing these spies and lying on their behalf and and working for the purposes of God. Joshua 2 verses 8 through 11, before the men laid down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard now that the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. James gives us two Old Testament examples of people whose faith and works were connected. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and Rahab, a Gentile prostitute from Jericho that until right before this had never heard of the God of Israel. James very intentionally gives us these two comparisons. In many ways, they couldn't be any more different. But there were some things about them that were the same that we'll talk about in just a moment. But before we do, let's recap what we've learned here tonight. Claiming to have faith does not give you faith. If you say you have faith, but you have no desire for works, then you do not have faith. True faith leads to a deepening theology and consistent obedience. And God is so good that he would save a pagan idolater like Abraham and a woman like Rahab, a Gentile from Jericho. Let's take a look at these two figures that James holds up for us. This is the Old Testament example of the fact that faith without works is dead. First, Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile. She obviously did not come from the people of God. She was a Gentile from Jericho, a pagan nation. We're told that she was a prostitute. Sometimes we have given that label to people in Scripture as a modern-day label when we know very little about their story. And Rahab, too, could have suffered injustice and enslavement at the hands of, of men in her culture. 
But this word in Hebrew, prostitute, it's actually been cleaned up a little bit when we say that she was a prostitute. She was literally a professional pornographer. That's the term that she had, a professional pornographer. Yet something happened in her life. She heard of the God of Israel and what he had done for their people. And her heart melted when she heard about this God and these people that were coming on behalf of this God. And she proclaims that their God is the God of heavens above and the earth beneath, the one true God. She professes a faith that she does not have on her own, that was not given to her by her heritage or her parents. She professes a faith that was given to her by God. And because she had heard about the faithfulness and the power of this God. James 2.25 says that Rahab in the same way. Rahab and Abraham have no business being in the same chapter in the Bible. But God is good. And he does not save based on our goodness or our heritage or our bloodline or the color of our skin. He saves by his mighty power and his outstretched arm. And that's what James wants us to know, that Abraham and Rahab were saved by the same God for the same reason. That's James' point for us here tonight. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man or woman runs into it, and they are safe. Rahab believed that, And her and her family were the only ones saved in Jericho. God looked down on her in the midst of a pagan, idolatrous people. He looked into her own heart and saw a scandalous woman that did not care about the things of God and chose to save her. If there's hope for her, there's hope for me, and there's hope for you. This is the God that James is telling us about. And when this God saves you, It leads to a life of righteousness and justice because we have been saved by a God that showed us his mighty power and his outstretched arm. Abraham. Genesis chapter 15 tells us his story. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And God brought Abraham outside and said, Look towards the heavens, number the stars, if you are even able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God ratifies this covenant with Abraham saying, if and when, Abraham, you break your end of the bargain, may my body be broken on your behalf. That is the good God that saved Abraham. That is the good God that saved Rahab. That is the good God that offers you his grace and mercy and power and righteousness here tonight. Rahab didn't clean up her act, and then God chose her because of her goodness. God called her out of her mess and said, you're mine, and I call you righteous. 
That's the God that we're talking about here tonight. Open with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. This is talking about the promise coming to Abraham and now being offered to us as well. Verse 16 of Romans 4. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he has been told so shall your offspring be skip down to verse 21 with me fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In summary, what these verses say is that Abraham had no faith and God gave him faith. God gave him righteousness. God gave him his works. God called into existence the things that were previously dead. The same God that called the world and everything we see today into existence calls your faith into existence and produces in you a righteousness and peace and acts of service that you could never do on your own. We need to stop trying to come up with works out of our own strength. We need to stop going to Jesus with our acts of righteousness and saying, here, will you now love me? No, we need to believe in the God who called into existence our very life, our spirit, our faith, our righteousness, all given by this good and powerful God. So who is righteous? It's not whoever claims to be righteous. It's who God declares is righteous. And those he declares as righteous will live a life of righteousness and justice because of their faith in the one that can save them. God calls into existence our faith because he is the one whose body was broken for us. Remember the covenant with Abraham? How God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham, and you're going to be the father of many nations. And anyone that has faith after you is grafted into your family, to use the words of Paul, to ratify this covenant, to seal this covenant. God says, my body will be broken When you break your end of the deal, just like you and I break our end of the deal with God, God says, may my body be broken. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. For his body to be broken for you and me because we've broken our end of the deal. We've broken our end of the righteousness. We can't be righteous before God. We may not be a professional pornographer like Rahab, but in our hearts, we have gone astray. Each day, 
We make choices to be our own boss, to go our own way. We live in a state of self-deception, to use the words of James, where that self-deception enslaves us and others to sin and to suffering and to shame. And the only thing that can save a wretch like me is God calling my faith and righteousness into existence. Tonight, you have have an opportunity to have him speak the same life into you. We're going to take part in communion, the breaking of the bread, the drinking of the fruit of the vine tonight to remember what Christ has done for us. You may be in one of two places here tonight. Maybe you've taken communion before, but you're thinking, you know what? I did not earn communion today with my attitudes, with the thoughts that I had in my heart, with the things that went through my head, with the things that my hands have done, even today in the last 24 hours, I don't deserve to partake in what Jesus offers. Or maybe you've never taken part in communion and you're thinking, I just, I do not deserve to do that. I'm gonna watch all the holy people go and do that, all the church folk, but that's not me. I I can't live up to that. Both of those types of people and all of us need to hear that it's not about what you have done. It's remembering what Jesus has already done for you. It's about your faith in him and what he has already done and his righteousness on your behalf because Jesus always did the will of the Father. He always did works of righteousness when you and I stumble at every turn. So come forward tonight. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to have your act together. Come and receive his grace. Come and celebrate what he has done. Come and remember his body broken for you.